Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Today is mercy, 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 mercy. Where in the word are you today? Let me invite you to turn to some passages related to our need for mercy. Psalm 103 is a great place to turn. Um, you, I encourage you to read the whole thing. Uh, here's it open. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Just trust me when I tell you, you could spend the day, you could spend the day making a list of all the benefits. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The psalmist then enumerates a a few of them. He who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Mercy, 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 mercy. 1 Peter 1, 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen. Can I get an amen this morning? Titus 3, verses 3 to 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hatred, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Psalm 25, verses 6 to 7, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespass, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. Mercy, 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 mercy. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Lamentations 3, 22 to 24, 1 Peter 2, 10, Matthew 5, 7, Luke 6, 36, James 2, 13. Mercy, 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 mercy. Word of the day, thought of the day, whoo, way to spend the day. 
If you know not the mercies of God, my friends, they are new every morning. If you are a person still living in the bondage of sin and the fear of death, God's mercy is available to you right now in Jesus Christ. All you have to do is, like David, turn to him and say, My distress is heavy upon me. There is nowhere for me to turn but to the mercy of God. Mercy, 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 mercy. All right, as you and I uh, and our communities are facing something like half of small businesses still closed, a staggering number that will never reopen. We hear there's going to be a $1.9 trillion package Uh, In a party line vote, probably this week, we also hear headlines that the United States has surpassed a half a million COVID-related deaths. Life expectancy has dropped by a full year. Cases have dropped by 77% in the past six weeks. We may have herd immunity by April. People are taking out religious exemptions against the vaccination. There's all kinds of COVID headlines to talk with this morning with Dr. Zach. That's up next. It's good to have you back again. Oh, hey, All right, joining me again today, Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. Um, Zach, welcome back. Good morning. All right, so I have a litany of questions. Um, when we hear that the United States has passed 500,000 COVID deaths, um, I have a lot of questions in my own family about this that I have then tried to explain. This is not deaths in addition to all the deaths that might have occurred. Is that correct? These are not all excess deaths. Right. So so they are uh, – it, it's a combination of a variety of things, but they are deaths that are associated with the coronavirus. Um, the big debate is how many of them are deaths in excess of what is expected versus how many of them are – just kind of deaths that we might typically see on average, given the time frame that we're looking at. So there's there's still a big proportion. It's it's probably about two thirds of that that seem to be more in excess uh, than the rest of the deaths that are being reported. So just it's just it's just helpful to keep in mind that numbers all require interpretation, and you are so helpful um, in assisting us in that. All right. Um, We're also reading that there is a drop in cases over the last six weeks, and that is really great, but we still have hospitals Mm -hmm. with a lot of COVID-related patients. So 77% drop in cases sounds like a really great thing. Herd immunity by April, that even sounds better. What's um, what's going on in terms of what what you are seeing and what you're hearing about in terms of maybe, I don't know, well, you tell me what it's attributed to. So there's a few things probably at play here, and it's certainly not, in my opinion, the vaccine that's making the biggest dent in that yet. Really, while we have been successful at vaccinating people, it's probably a little bit too early to really see it affect the numbers that drastically. So a few things could be happening. Um, One of the theories, and there's some proponents that are suggesting that maybe April could be a time where we see herd immunity. But uh, one of the theories behind that is they're saying, well, there's more spread than what we realized. And that's possible. The other models are really kind of suggesting that we would see kind of the number of cases per day plateau um, as far as like herd immunity goes somewhere in July. And then others are suggesting that we wouldn't really see the full impact of 
like what hernia might start to look like till maybe September. So there are three points in time that, that are pretty big in my mind that, that people are debating over. And then, of course, you have people that are saying it won't happen until like fall of 2022. So yeah, I'm not listening to those like people. I'm else. setting I'm setting those people aside. I don't know who they are, <laughs> yeah, but I'm too. setting them aside, me and I'm too. not listening to them. <laughs> I'll tell you from what I have seen, and I know there's there's some there's a lot of movement now where people are getting excited about April because when we hear this, we all want everything to be over, and I want things to be over too. Believe me, um, I don't think it's going to be over in April. Uh, the the data seems to imply that really we'll start seeing things head towards more of a herd in July. I heard immunity in July. And the other thing to kind of keep in mind is we know sometime in the next 45 days or so, we might start to see the impact of the variants hitting the U.S. We already have some of the variants present here. It's not like they're not here. But based on growth rates and, and historical spread, we're expecting that to start to cause numbers to rise in some areas. All right. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the trajectory of variants. Sure. Yeah. Um, when it comes to variants, you know, we've got our big ones that, that we've heard a lot about. We have the UK variant and then we have the South African variant, which are probably the ones that are most worth talking about. Uh, the UK variant is the one that we have heard probably the most press about simply because it's the one we've already seen in the U.S. and it's probably going to be spreading the fastest here. Um what we're concerned about is, you know, there are big things we want to pay attention to with variants. If we see variants of any virus, um, but given the lack of people that have been exposed to this, you may see a bigger impact. That's at least one of the theories. So a couple of things we want to pay attention to is, number one, is this more infectious than regular COVID? Uh, number two, it, it would be like, is this going to cause more serious illness than COVID? And then number three is, um, would this potentially evade host immunity? So those are our three big questions we kind of have to ask with any variant. The UK variant, at least, uh, is kind of impacted in this, the first two areas. So it does actually have a higher infectivity rate. It's about 70% more infectious than the strain that's been dominant here in the U.S. And then there is some data that's starting to imply that it does cause somewhat more serious disease, although there's a bit of a debate about how serious that is. All right, we got to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to um, continue our conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. We're talking about um, a number of COVID headlines. We got a good one. We got a good news headline here um, no evidence of spread on food packaging. We're going to talk about uh, what we think we know about how people get it. All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, I'm talking with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. We're talking all things COVID headlines, uh, and we are looking at headlines today related to um, how COVID-19 spreads. And and now, uh, all contrary to you know what was what some of the concerns were raised in the very beginning, there is no evidence of spread on food packaging. Okay, so this this I have to tell you that it does seem as if there's new information all the time. Remind us why that is. Uh, well, there, there's a few reasons behind it. Um, so there, so prior to COVID, we know that like, with medical literature, there are about somewhere between 13,000 and 15,000 new medical articles published every day. 
So that was prior to COVID. So if you kind of keep that in mind, you can imagine how much is coming out about COVID all the time. Um, and as we look across different countries and everyone's vested interest in battling this and really kind of getting out of these situations that we're in, you can see why that's a big issue. The problem we run into is it takes time to vet all that, all those studies to make sure that they're well-designed, that they don't have a lot of bias inherent in how they've been built. And, and so then we end up in situations like this where there's new and emerging data that we have to kind of evaluate as it comes to us. So what we have now is some evidence to suggest that food is not really a big spreader of COVID. It's not impossible. There just doesn't seem to be any high likelihood that it's a big concern for people, which I, I think is, is a really good thing. I'll tell you, you know, at least in, in my house, we haven't been wiping down our groceries for quite some time. So that was in the absence, of course, of formal data coming out. But it seemed to be a lot of things seem to be leaning towards that not being a major source of spread. Um, so it, it's at least one less concern, even though we've heard stories about things coming over from China on, on boats, on food. Right. So um, uh, there's a lot of avoidance of coronavirus. I mean, you know, necessarily so and uh, would seem to be very, very prudent. But then we get headlines like this. A British study is going to infect people with COVID intentionally. <laughs> I got to tell you, there's some stuff yeah. where you're just like, well, OK, OK, tell us about this. <laughs> so it. It's not like we've never done that before historically, but typically when we start talking about just inoculating people with the virus, um, that's something we, we tend to avoid when we're doing studies for a lot of obvious ethical reasons. Um, what they're doing here, though, is they're picking a group of individuals who are the least at risk. So they're looking at those under the age of 30, and they're looking at um, those individuals who also probably don't have a lot of those comorbidities that put people in a higher risk category. So these, in theory, should be the healthiest of the healthiest. And they're taking a small population. So if there's a problem, they should be able to identify that relatively early and try to remove them from the trial. But even so, it does make you a little bit nervous when you hear about it because we do have younger people, although it's rare, we do have younger people that do have complications from COVID. So just intentionally infecting people brings a lot of negative connotations. What it can do for us, though, uh, potentially if it's done well and done right, we, we can learn about treatments and vaccines a little bit more effectively because it's such a controlled environment. All right. And then, Zach, I'm reading um, I'm reading a headline related to, well, actually, I've read a number, um, people reacting to the CDC's school guidance and then mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. maybe how that was, you know, edited along the way. I'm also reading a number of headlines related to religious exemptions um, that people are planning to make in relationship to schools requiring vaccines or requiring this particular vaccination. Um, can you talk with us a little bit about all of that? I think the religious exemption one is, is a topic that you and I should return to and dig into more mm-hmm. deeply in the future, particularly like what are the various rationales behind that? Um, but maybe today, let's just give a give a broad sweep over the over the topics here about CDC school school guidance and how people are reacting to that. Yeah, you know what, um, and I'll, I'll just kind of remind all the listeners, so my wife is a third grade teacher, so I'm very intimately familiar with how COVID is being handled in elementary schools and have lots of strong opinions about what I don't like. Um, <laughs> with, with all that being said, so what these guidelines are doing is um, they're, they're laying out groundwork for places to basically come back to some semblance of normality if they already are 
or I guess if they're still remote. At least that's what the CDC has formally said. Now, what we're getting in the controversy is there's a bit of a clash between teachers unions and the Biden administration right now. Um, the Biden administration is not publicly coming out and saying that um, they, the teachers can go back to school without a vaccine, even though the CDC is suggesting that they can. Of course, both want individuals to get a vaccine if they can, but the teachers unions are fighting pretty hard about not going back until everyone's been vaccinated. So there's a, there's a bit of a debate at play uh, on that on that side of things. Yeah, and the requirement in terms of like requiring people to be vaccinated. I mean, there are there are teachers and people who work in schools who don't want to be vaccinated necessarily, and there are certainly parents who don't want their children to be vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think this is going to be a very robust conversation going yeah. forward. And, and with um, so, children too, yeah, yeah. that's that's a that's a big topic that they've they've discussed quite a bit. You know, kids are the least at risk, and they're the least likely to spread it. So, the debate is, you know, in the absence of data, do we really even need to vaccinate vaccinate kids right now? And I think it's a really good question to raise. I think that it's a really good question to raise on a lot of fronts um, mm-hmm. in terms of vaccines. I I do think that that is uh, a robust conversation that. You know, that needs to be revisited, especially if, you know, if, if every if every other thing that you're going to say about this is um, follow the science, then um, let's you know, let's hold people accountable to follow the science on this as well. Kids are not uh, at high risk. They're not they're mm-hmm. not uh, active spreaders. Um, let's not require them. Well, anyway, that'd be me opining. So mm-hmm. I'll just leave it right there. <clears throat> I'll uh, <clears throat> I'll reserve my opinion. Um, any other uh, you got time for one more headline. Uh, any other headline that has your attention in terms of covid this week? Yeah, th- this one's actually pretty, pretty important, I feel. So there's a study that actually came out recently. And what they did is they looked at um, the amount of virus that an individual carries and whether or not that impacts the severity of the disease. So you know, does it matter if, if you have, I'm just making a number up here, but, you know, 1 billion versus 1 million uh, viral particles floating around in your system. And most people would say logically it would make a difference. Um, but some diseases, that's not the case. The study, though, is actually giving us evidence to, to, to suggest that you can correlate severity of outcome with the amount of virus. And why this is so important is when we think about the initial exposure that people have to the virus, there's correlation there as well. So if you have a large amount of the virus you're hit with up front, your outcomes are potentially worse than if you just had a smaller amount. So this is important when we think about some of the guidelines that have been kind of discussed as far as like, you know, distancing if you're in areas that are pretty crowded um, and then trying to do things like wear a mask, which is, in my opinion, more like a coffee filter, (laughs) if you want to think about it that way. Um, so, so it's blocking out some of the particles and actually decreasing the amount of viral load is the term that we use that spreads to the people. And, and we see this kind of same theory talked about with HIV. We've talked about that for years. We've just never really applied the same concept to other kinds of viruses before. Um, so at least there's some evidence to kind of support some of the practices that we've been doing. Dr. Zach Jenkins, as always, thank you so much. Um, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm secretly looking forward to the um, time when we don't have to talk every Monday. But I do look forward <laughs> to talking with you every Monday. No, I had thank that you. Recently, <laughs> right? Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your persistence and your availability and your expertise. We really appreciate it. Absolutely happy to help. Thanks. Let's continue praying for Dr. Zach and others on the front lines. 
of the COVID-19 fight uh, in our own communities and across the country and around the world. All right, we got to take a brief break for Knowing God, and then we'll be right back. All right, have you heard that the Equality Act uh, is now before Congress? Do you also wish there were more competency in government? And are you wondering how the Republican Party will define itself in the wake of the Trump presidency? I'm going to talk about all of that up next with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. We'll be right back. Years ago, I met a high school boy who'd kept a secret about an inappropriate relationship with an older woman. The personal shame and pressure of keeping that secret drove him to give up everything he loved and to hurt his closest relationships. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. When the boy's secret was finally exposed, his parents couldn't believe he didn't confide in them sooner. He said, you never ask. No matter what inappropriate behaviors your teen engages in, you can connect with your kids by asking insightful questions. Then wait for them to answer. Don't try to fill in the awkward silence with more words. You'll be surprised how much you learn about your teen because you ask and because you listen. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Joining me now, Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Adam, welcome back. Glad to be back. Hope you're all thawing well from the the, the cold. Hey, we well, <clears throat> I we are actually all thawed out where I live. I mean, like in the in the wet swampy version of all thawed out, we have arrived there this morning. Um, but um, yeah, most of our listeners across the Upper Midwest um, won't expect a thaw until I don't know April. I don't know. When do things thaw out where you are, Paul? Well, actually, today we're looking at a high of 41, so we'll get a little thaw oh, here in the yeah, Twin yeah. Cities. So. It's going to be there slushy, go. man. Yeah, got it. We did make snow cream for the first time ever at my house. Oh, nice. I, I don't know. It's a I, declaration. I mean, we've never, we've never had enough snow to make anything like snow. I mean, eight cups of snow is what's required, and we've never gotten eight cups of snow. So, um, yeah, it's exciting. There you go. That's the most exciting thing that's happened. And snowmen. We built snowmen. We built snow elves. I mean, there are all kinds of snow people in my yard. They are, they are um, kind of sad this morning. One of them completely lost his head last night. So there you go. Okay. <clears throat> well, they're on the extreme weight loss program with the sun. <laughs> yes. That's pretty much what's going on here. Okay. Let's uh, let's talk about what's going on in D.C. Um, remind us about the Equality Act and tell it tell us where it is in terms of its progress through Congress. Right. And the Equality Act's been. Uh, put forward in some form really going back to the 1970s, the present form since 2015. And what it's seeking to do is basically add to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is one of the landmark pieces of legislation in American history, add to its anti-discrimination provisions, uh, protections for LGBTQ uh, persons who identify in that community. And uh, it it has been presented again. It passed the House in 2019 and stalled in the Senate. It is going to be brought forward again in the House of Representatives in the next week or so. 
likely to pass again in the House. And then the question is, with a 50-50 Senate, will it be stalled or ignored or go anywhere in, in the United States Senate? So that's at least the update on where it is and, and, and where it's going at this point. So all eyes are really going to be on the Senate and its new makeup. Will that make a difference? This is a, um, from a Christian worldview, this is a very destructive, I mean, it, it's a very destructive piece of legislation with a really pretty name. So the Equality Act sounds like something we should all be um, excited about and supportive of. Um, the Equality Act supposedly makes all kinds of promises, um, but there are some really dark edges to this. Can you talk about those? Right. And what it what it will do is wipe away at, well first by by adding uh, these these pr- these protections against discrimination they're very broad they're in employment housing education if you get federal funding if you're if public accommodations which is almost any business or entity open to the public it will it does not have protections for religious dissent that if you have a for religious reasons a a belief about what marriage is or a belief about what human biology is in relation to human persons there there are not protections for that in fact it actually undermines some of the protections that many uh, christians especially have leaned on in the religious freedom restoration act from the 90s that's what was used by hobby lobby to protect themselves and 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 as of now, there's really no budging from uh, those who are putting this forward and trying to make any accommodations for those who have religious objections, which means if you're engaging in most of public society in some way, shape or form, you would probably at some point have to bend to this if the circumstance arose. There's really not much protection for you otherwise. When we talk about... Um federal funding, and we talk about the requirements related to this, um, anyone who owns rental property, anyone who is selling a house, anyone who um, offers a piece of property for any public accommodation. Um, I mean, I, the list is pretty long here. Um, we we've, we might think about um, people who whose business is related to Weddings, since that has come up a lot, cakes or photographers or these kinds of things. Um, but this is a much more broad and wide sweeping. Um, this is a comprehensive piece of legislation. Is that is that a fair and accurate uh, term to use here? This is comprehensive. This is going to touch yes. everything. Just about just about anything. I would say that pro- churches themselves are still going to be protected in what they say or do. But if you are a Christian or, or, or another religion that has these these views, <clears throat> trying to operate in society, you are going to come up against this. And, and a big part of it isn't even the federal funding. A lot of times people think federal funding is the way that, 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 the, that these kind of laws get to have such wide sweep. It's actually the public accommodations. Uh, we have gone historically, back way back in history, public accommodations used to be were you operating something on behalf of the government, like a public utility, or were you uh, a, a, a necessity like an inn for travelers, and then you you had to abide by certain extra rules? Now it's really if you engage in society with others through business, through property transactions, through almost most of the things that people do in life, 
there's going to be something that has now been defined as a public accommodation. So it is not wrong or, or being uh, 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 or being alarmist to say that this will touch many, many most people's lives in some way. All right, uh, Dr. Adam Carrington and I are going uh, to pivot now. Um, I I really appreciate um, your reflections on um, this need for competency in government. Um, Tell us what you're thinking about there and then maybe how we ought to be thinking about and encouraging others to think on this front. Yes, I think where this comes up is in light of we're going to have to assess what happened in Texas, and I'm not saying we know for mm-hmm. sure to what degree it was avoidable or not, but we need to look at that. The COVID ro- rollout, uh, rollout of, of, of the vaccines, the, the questions about how, say, Governor Cuomo in New York has handled his uh, the, the, the statistics for COVID, among other things. And I think what it is is that we, we have a glut of government officials doing a certain thing, and that is speaking in a way where they're trying to represent at least subsets of the community, where they're uh, defending verbally the dignity or the priorities or the, 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 the other, uh, you know, uh, defending them rhetorically. And But I think what these instances show is that we also have government not just to speak for us, but to do things, uh, to do particular things. We, we want competent rollout of health and safety measures. We want competent protections for those who are in need. We basic competent protections against crime and, and that all people deserve and need that. And I think that it's interesting. We talked before about the, the the need for people being willing to do policy, not just um, say things on Twitter or not just give rousing speeches, even though there's a place for those. And I think when real life in the way the pandemic has been real life and the way that um, that what happened in Texas has been real life, I think uh, uh, shows a need to demand not just uh, verbal representation, but action to to, to, to do things, to protect and help people, and that that's what, one of the reasons we have government. And it's something that I think our governments have shown a particular struggle with in certain big challenges that have arisen, especially over the last year, as, 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 as the normal has become completely abnormal. You have me thinking here that we really need um, people who are competent and willing to work, I mean, work on really big national issues, immigration, education, healthcare, infrastructure, those come immediately to mind. I'm sure there are others, Um, security, cybersecurity, and yet none of those, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and do and do it in serious ways, because sometimes now politicians will put out a tweet or and I'm not just thinking of one person, many or or they will put out a proposal, so to speak, that's really just a glorified press release. Mm -hmm. It's not actually wrestling with the hard questions of how would you make this actually work in real life, because that can often be boring. It doesn't get you retweets. It doesn't get you YouTube views. But when push comes to shove, like we've seen happen time and time again, especially over the last year, that boring 
in the trenches, working out late night, the boring details of how something will actually work is where the crucial parts of how we're protected, how we live as a community together are done. Yeah. And we're, we don't tend to reward um, people doing the, the hard work of policy, the real work that would actually make things work better in the real world um, because we have become such a culture of celebrity. And so there's a, there's a there's a confluence of of things going on, and um, uh, Christians need to be you know we need to be a little bit more serious minded about these things, and we need to be looking for the people who are doing the hard policy work, and we need to um, consider what they're proposing, and then we need to support them where we can. Um, Adam, let's take a very brief break. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, and I mean, a brief example would be, you know, Andrew Cuomo, uh, and there are other examples. Mm-hmm. It's just very quickly, he he rhetorically was great at the beginning of the pandemic, and 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 we need and New York needed that rhetoric, uh, needed that uh, uh, statements. But then, as we've seen how he actually ran the government and how New York ran its government, all of a sudden it's like, well, that wasn't nearly enough. We we needed the other side uh, for that as well, as as just one example of that. Yeah, it's good. All right. Uh, Dr. Adam Carrington and I will return in just a moment. We'll be right back. This is a new day. All right, I confess to having a number of things that I want to talk to Dr. Carrington about that are not on the list for today. So um, let me just warn you in advance, Adam. I want to talk either with you or somebody else from Hillsdale about um, the uh, the Barney Charter School Initiative and all of the Christian charter schools that Hillsdale is is now related to across the country, um, because I think that a reform in education and how it's delivered across the country is an essential part of the conversation post-COVID. Um, and Christians, I think, can be on the forefront of that if we're willing to do the hard policy work that we just uh, talked about in the prior segment. So I'm teeing that up for a future conversation. And if it's not with you, then um, I'm relying on you to find me the right person at Hillsdale to talk with about that. Is that a deal? Absolutely. It's a great awesome. program that's doing a lot of good things that I, 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 I that I think really does need to be trumpeted to, to create an even bigger network. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and helping people, um, access really good curriculum. Okay, let's um let's talk about one of the things on our list today, and that is defining Trumpism. We have uh, now heard that uh, former President Donald Trump is going to speak at an event this coming weekend. Um, there are a lot of people looking to that as the you know defining moment of um, what things are going to look like in the future. I'm not sure I'm convinced of that, but talk with us about what you're seeing. Right. This this really is, I think, the underlying consuming debate on the political right. And it's not even underlying. Right. It's it's up. It's. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is the uh, I think what he was about to say, this is the debate that's right here on the surface of things. Paul will now work diligently to get Dr. Carrington back. Um, And when he comes back, we'll continue talking about defining Trumpism. But one headline that he and I are probably not going to get to that I want uh, everyone to be aware of, um, Meghan McCain is asserting that half of women are pro-life. And that is something that um, I would love for you to check out um, as well in terms of your reading today. All right, um, Adam, um, we're, we're continuing our conversation about defining Trumpism. You, I feel like you were about to say this is actually not an undercurrent. This is actually the lead conversation happening among conservatives in the country today. 
yes, it is, and I apologize, uh, te no, technologies, good. Bane. Um, so uh, I, uh, yes, I, and and I think that where I was kind of saying underlying is I think the overlying argument can get petty and and nasty very quickly on both sides where it becomes either a loyalty test or a a uh, you know are you a bad person test and I don't think that's helpful but I think what is 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 a question is what did President Trump um, uh, uh, what did he expose or show about the needs of the American polity? And I think he did show that there are a number of voters who, uh, not just rhetorically, but policy-wise, need more, to be listened to more, needed better inclusion, and that there are certain middle-class issues related to trade or related to taxes or related to immigration that there are, there are reasonable needs that need to be addressed. And I think that the, to the degree that uh, Trumpism, at least, uh, or whatever you want to call it, takes into account that, that there is something there and something very healthy and necessary to, to take into account. Whereas I think there's also some more things that are more attached just to the man or, or certain personality qualities and certain personality ideas, which I think would be a, unhealthy for the party and unhealthy for the definition, not just because of uh, you know certain vices that the man had that most just about anyone admitted, but that uh, I think the most effective movements, whether you talk about Reaganism or conservatism itself, is certain men and women helped to define what it was. They weren't themselves the definition of it. That they created and fostered ideas and movements that lived beyond them, and so that's where I think the healthier conversation is not loyalty or disloyalty to a man. I think that's very problematic. Uh, but what have we learned from the last five years about America and its polity, and how can we be better about those things and not just act like we can go back to a a status quo that, quite frankly, wasn't working given what has happened? Can you and I um, look back um, to an administration, one prior to Trump, um, and talk a little bit maybe about how you might see some of the same things related to Obama? It's not like he was any good at all uh, in terms of like cultivating a generation of people um, who were then able to press forward, move forward, rise up into positions of leadership. Instead, I mean— the only way that it could go forward was by electing his former vice president, you know, and and looking back in that way. Like there was there's not a lot of going forward with the ideas past the person. And that's what I hear you saying. How how do we go forward past the person with the with the ideas, with the with the positive um, policy things that we might be able to point to, recognizing that it can't still be the same person like the it's not the it needs to not be the person it needs to be the policies right and and we need good people to push them but we need to push the people because of the policies not the other way and you're absolutely right about president obama it shows a a a deeper problem of the incapacity or the the actually the, the a, a sort of cult of personality or a cult of celebrity where we put our hopes our identity 
into the success or failure of particular people in the presidency, in, in, in specifically, and 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 set them up to fail. By the way, because they're not going to be our God, uh, and they shouldn't be. And I, if anything, I think uh, the right at this point, if it, it its flaws tend to lean a little heavier on that cult of personality, I would say the left, while it had a, a personality cult problem with Obama that I don't think is going to be repeated with Biden just because Biden's not capable of, 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 of shouldering that, uh, if anything, they have a problem of making political ideology into a doctrine. Uh, or doctrines that they try to enforce on people uh, as if it was religious truth that must be uh, forced on everyone to be believed. Uh, so in some ways we have both sides, I think, falling into um, uh, articulations that where, where I think for too many people their their religion is being replaced by their ideology, sometimes not even consciously. But I, I, I think that that sort of is a, a ramble from what you just said, but I think it comes out of wanting to have politics supply our gods and politics supply our doctrines. And I think that's been become a, a, a problematic thing for too many people on the left and right. Yeah, and abortion might be the exemplar there. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. as far as whatever, whatever the ideology is, whatever the the whatever you know, anything else or anyone else may say, uh, that has become a kind of litmus test on the political left, where dissent, even mild dissent from it, is taken as heresy. And this treatment of political differences, if it is heresy, is just as toxic as any kind of hero worship. Uh, that may go on in other segments of, of, of the population or other segments of, of, of the political spectrum. All right. We want to um, we want to highlight comments by Megan McCain related to uh, ha- the number of women who are pro-life. She asserted that uh, something like half of women are uh, pro-life. Um, I'd, I'd love to imagine that that number is higher and I'd love for women to get on the forefront of that conversation and argument. Dr. Adam Carrington and I got to leave it right there. You can find him at Hillsdale College and he tweets at Carrington AM. Adam, thanks so much. Thank you. All right, we're going to end this hour where we began. Mercy, 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 mercy. Let us uh, cast ourselves and our concerns on the mercies of God, which are indeed new every morning. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.